And good morning, everybody. I'm Alan Carpenter with Maestro Daniel Meyer. And uh, again, the excitement of beat Beethoven. We did it again. <sighs> I always get worn out doing this particular <laughs> concert. I mean, to run a 5K and conduct at the same time is... Um, That's a lot. It's a superhuman feat, but somehow I, I managed to pull it off. You know, we've talked about it before, but it's kind of interesting, uh, since you make the joke, that as a conductor... It's amazing how physical it is because people always look at the baton, but it's really it's your whole body is kind of giving cues to the to the orchestra. I teach young conductors now and within three minutes, they can't even raise their arms. I mean, that's how taxing and exhausting it is to hold your and it's a simple experiment. Just hold your hands up above your waist for longer than 30 seconds and Mm -hmm. you feel gravity working against you. And that's what you have to do for two and a half, three. If you're conducting a Wagner opera, mm-hmm. you may you may be conducting for six hours. So a lot wow. of those conductors try to find a way to put on some comfortable shoes when they're conducting in the dark opera pit. Right. And then just before they hop up on stage, take the bow at the end with the cast, there's an <laughs> assistant there with the shiny shoes. Really? Ready to slip them on your feet so that when you step out onto the stage and take your bows... Everyone thinks that you've been conducting the entire time in shiny shoes and a, and a full tuxedo, whereas in many cases, some of the maestros, you know, have a polo shirt and some sneakers on just in, in order to get through the, right. the the physical taxing nature of what it takes to conduct so they a have full maximum, production. Maximum comfort. You know, that would be a good occasion for Crocs. I'm just saying. <laughs> You know, we could get black and white sort of tuxedo ones maybe. Well, with. that was a real eye opener for me when I had the chance once to to. to not scrub in, but I actually got to observe a surgery mm. when I was a, a student in Vienna, Austria. My host was a facial surgeon. He let me um, scrub in and, and wear scrubs, and all of the doctors were wearing Crocs. Sure. One, just protect your feet, but the other was that it's just a comfortable way to stand for that long. And they're antimicrobial. I mean, it's just, <laughs> hey, you know, I think it will work for a conductor. A good story. Uh, someone asked Lauren Mazel, the great conductor, who was, uh, I think, then the music director of the Cleveland Orchestra. And he decided one weekend to conduct all Beethoven, all nine Beethoven symphonies in one day with the Cleveland Orchestra at Blossom Music Center. And somebody wow. asked him, said, Maestro, what is the secret to making it through this, this incredible marathon of conducting all nine Beethoven symphonies in one day? And he stopped and he said, comfortable shoes. <laughs> well, that's it. But I mean, in addition to the physical part, um, the focus of it, and we, we've talked about this before, but if you're sort of somebody who is a novice Really like I am, basically. I, I, I enjoy classical music, but I'm always trying to learn a little bit more about the process and how the orchestra works, even without Benjamin Britten helping me along sometime as a not, no longer young person uh, and my guide to the orchestra. But understanding how the process of, of being a conductor, how that works and, and, and what cues the orchestra is looking for. And um, we always talk about it, but it's really fascinating to me how variable our performance can be from another performance of the same piece. And you've mentioned before that, uh, for example, you know, we just heard the fifth, that different recordings have very different run times because that performance is just faster. Well, and just beyond a maestro's individual whims about tempo decisions, speed, shaping, where cadences fall, there's also an entire new level that has affected this, the performing time, which is what we call the period, per, period practice performance movement, which emerged in the 60s, mm-hmm. really heated up in the 80s and 90s, 
where there were conductors and musicians who were studying how orchestras actually played in Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn's day. In other words, they were looking to use the precise same instruments or Mm -hmm. replicas thereof that the instrumentalists back in the day were using. Now, of course, we all know that the violins that violins play today are essentially the same instrument that they were, but they used to uh, they used to play with gut strings, cat gut strings, mm-hmm. and now we play with nylon wound around with string for durability and for projection. Right. But back in the day, those strings were made out of, of cat gut. Or instruments like the bassoon or the oboe that were shaped differently or developed differently. In some cases, uh, it was even the clarinet wasn't even invented yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those decisions and those instruments that, that you used back in the day would affect the speeds that you used, uh, the way that you would interpret the music, whether you would take things at a very slow tempo and and highlight the individual details in the music, or whether you would choose a faster tempo to give an o- a better overall picture of what was happening, but perhaps some of those details wouldn't be as vivid or as easily recognizable. So mm. those decisions that were influenced by the instruments that were used back in the day also affect tempo and speed at which we perform this music. So now... There's no way you'll hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony performed in the same way. And it has mm-hmm. to do with whether you're hearing it with a per, uh, period performance band or you're hearing it with the Berlin Philharmonic or the Erie Philharmonic. Um, all of those distinct ensembles make distinct uh, decisions about the music making. And it's part of my job to know what those choices are and know what those options would be. And it's interesting that each orchestra obviously has its, you know, its strengths. And I don't want to say weaknesses, but it always has the thing that, you know, the, the, this orchestra you look for to perform this kind of piece. What are the strengths of the, of the Erie Philharmonic? When you, as a conductor, you say, we're really good at this. For me, the Erie Philharmonic is born out of the traditions that exist in this part of the world. And those traditions are largely propagated through the great music schools mm-hmm. nearby. So the Cleveland school, if you will, quote unquote, is fostered in the music making and the teaching that happens largely at the Cleveland Institute of Music and, and Cleveland State and Kent State and, and some of those really fine music programs that exist in that part of the world. So our musicians are trained there mm-hmm. and a lot of them play with us while the, the finest ones play with us while they're students. And then some of them make their lives and settle in this part of the world and become full professional members of the Erie Philharmonic. And, and, and the Cleveland Orchestra, of course, very significantly influences the way that people make music and decide to make music. And the Cleveland Orchestra is renowned worldwide for their precision. Precision. They play like a Swiss watch. Mm-hmm. They play with such an incredible... Um, attention to detail and, and, and frankly, Severance Hall allows them to do that. Part of the acoustic in which they learn and play uh, influences those musical decisions that they make, but they also have this culture of Mm -hmm. really precise, really finely honed performances and the repertoire that they choose also helps them in that. They, Mm -hmm. they really focus a lot on music from the classic period, from the classical era of Beethoven, Haydn, Mozart, Schubert. Right. Um, The Pittsburgh symphony uh, is more of a, uh, I would say, kind of a, they play with a robust, full-blooded, mm-hmm. uh, a really warm and deep sound, and that's cultivated by the music directors that they've had over the years. It's also cultivated by the, the space in which they play, and it's, in, in other degrees, cultivated by the musicians that serve on the faculty at Duquesne and Carnegie mm-hmm. Mellon and some of the other schools in, in Southwest Pennsylvania. So... And then, of course, you have to add some of the other influences that are happening in Fredonia or Buffalo mm-hmm. or anything roughly within a two, 
two hours radius of, of Erie. So I have these musicians that are reared in these distinct traditions and I get to put them together in one single ensemble. And for me, the strategy has been to capitalize on the amazing precision and technical capabilities of what might've been uh, espoused in the Cleveland school Mm -hmm. and marry it with this incredible depth and warmth and gorgeous full tone, full bodied sound that comes out of this, this Pittsburgh school Mm -hmm. And frankly, I, I was reared in both of those traditions too, because when I was a kid, I grew up in Cleveland listening to the Cleveland Orchestra. And as a, as a young professional, I was the assistant and then resident conductor of the Pittsburgh Symphony. So I had these two very distinct sound worlds and approaches in my head. And I thought, how can I reconcile these right. two? So here I have the Erie Philharmonic, uh, which capitalizes on both of those schools. And I'm able to um, work with musicians that have expertise in both areas. And it's not to say that they're mutually ex- exclusive. Of course not. Right. Uh, it's not to say that the Cleveland Orchestra can't play and d- doesn't play with a warm and full-bodied sound. They do. And it's not to say that Pittsburgh doesn't play with a precise sound. They, of course, do as well. Um, but it's more of an area of focus mm-hmm. or, or, or where you put your, uh, your musical ideas. So I'm able to kind of live in that world that combines the two, and I'm able to capitalize on that when I work with the musicians of the Erie Philharmonic. And the thing about this is a lot of that, too, um, a novice ear or a non-musician ear, a lot of this is fairly subtle. Um, you obviously in your in your job with your background and your training and your experience and your talent are able to recognize these things and work them together. It's sort of like cooking. You may taste something that's delicious. You may not know what the spices are or, gee, you, you caramelized that onion. I didn't realize. But the chef knows what went into it. And when it comes out, it's pleasing. Absolutely. But it's subtle stuff. And as you say, subtlety, it could be decisions that, that only, for instance, if you make a tempo decision, if you only play it two more clicks faster on the metronome, it completely changes the sensation and the way that the orchestra makes musical decisions about that music and the way that the audience perceives mm-hmm. music. Um, so there are certainly artistic decisions that have to be made, but there are also practical decisions that need to be made vis-a-vis where you're playing. So when I'm conducting Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on Perry Square, I'm going to conduct that differently by necessity than I would on the stage at the Warner Theater or I might conduct at the on the stage at Carnegie Music Hall in Pittsburgh or wherever else I might uh, mm-hmm. have the pleasure or the honor of conducting. So the acoustical space also has a, a significant influence on artistic decisions that we have to make in the heat of the battle. It's interesting you say that because even as a guy like myself, just an amateur guitar player, I know how different it is when you're playing at a party or playing outside or, you know, playing in the bathroom with all the great natural reverb. It's got to be an interesting challenge when obviously the the standard performance is in in, in a performance space. When you play outside and there's no reverb and there's no, you know, no resonance of the walls in the hall, that's got to be an interesting challenge. We actually grapple with that challenge every week that we rehearse with the Philharmonic because the first two rehearsals are at this wonderful concert hall on the campus of Edinburgh University. Mm. And it's got a beautiful orchestra shell. The orchestra is surrounded almost like in a cocoon, an acoustic Mm -hmm. cocoon. And the reverberation time is longer and the experience is completely different. And even the way that the stage is set up there is different from what we have at the Warner Theater. Mm -hmm. So we do our first rehearsals in Edinburgh and then we bring it to the Warner and we in some ways have to reinvent the wheel, at least from an acoustical standpoint and a reaction time standpoint. Right. And frankly, a lot of balancing that we do in rehearsals also has to be tweaked at the Mm. Warner because we're used to playing in one space and have to completely retool 
when we take another, which is why we're so keen on this renovation that's slated for the Warner Theater. Yes. Because once that happens, we'll have a legitimate orchestra shell that surrounds the orchestra completely, back, sides, above, and enables the orchestra to hear each other and to react to each other in a, in a consistent manner, but then also gets that sound that collects on the stage amplified or pushed out into the auditorium. Yeah, to make a very simple comparison, if, if, if someone's listening and saying, you know, what are they talking about? Um, if you ever had somebody want to play something for you on their phone and they put the phone in the empty coffee cup and all of a sudden you can hear it, uh, that's a very sort of basic idea of what happens. And if you've ever seen and I, I know a lot of people have, a performance of an orchestra in a, in a proper shell like that, it is just astounding the detail you hear in the clarity. I mean, obviously the Warner has the warmth, and that's why it's so good for rock shows and so good for, obviously built for movies originally, but so good for rock shows and jazz shows and so forth. But we really want that clarity, and you need to hear all the elements of the orchestra clearly. And I, I think those renovations would is going to be astounding uh, to listen to you guys play. I mean, as afterwards. an artist and as a leader of an orchestra that performs there, I'm really keen on shaping this, the space so that the musicians feel just as comfortable making music and hearing each other on stage as the audience feels comfortable mm -hmm. engaged with what's transpiring on that stage. And, you know, one of the things we always talk about and one of the things we always think about is we're here and they're there. And a great con any great concert experience, you forget about that. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're part of what's happening on the stage to such a degree that you don't even sense that that otherness or that that distance between audience and performer. Right. So we're always trying to find ways to bridge that gap or to, or to transcend any perceived uh, wall that's put up between the audience and and the and the stage. And I think with the renovation and new lighting and just the comfort. Uh, of having a new acoustical space will will dramatically improve and change the way that we make our music and the way that the audience hears it. It's kind of interesting when you talk about the wall because there is a psychological wall with some people when it comes to classical music. Um, I and I was it's funny I've been sort of retrospectively thinking about my love of music, my lifelong just you know I I'm in radio I live for music and I remember and I know you guys have played it at the age of eleven getting the soundtrack to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And it was my first real piece. I'd heard, you know, you hear bits and pieces. You hear a little bit of the Beethoven's Fifth or a little bit of Bach here and there. It was the first, like, full piece of classical music I would sit down and I was so crazy about Star Wars, listen to over and over. And it was such a great education for a kid because you get to hear, you know, the, the, the themes, the recurring themes, and maybe something's played in a major key here and it turns up in a minor key later. And... It's really a, a neat piece of music, and um, I think, uh, you know, that was such, I knew at the time that this wasn't something that I had to worry about, well, this isn't cool, or am I qualified to know about this, because uh, it, it was Star Wars, and it just opened a door for me. Um, and I wonder how many people start off with something sort of like semi-classical like that, and then say, okay, well, now that I've got now that I've had a now that I've had a chicken nugget, now I'm going to have some delicious, you know, real chicken. Well, I have a couple thoughts about that. One is just that I love Star Wars probably just as much as you do, and the thrill of standing up in front of the Erie Philharmonic and leading music from that movie is it's an emotional thing for me. Yeah, because 
I remember that feeling you get when you sit in the theater, the the, the lights go dark and you hear dun da da dun da 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 I mean, it moves you. It shakes you to your core. It does. And it evokes all of those scenes and those emotions that you felt in the film. The other thought I had about it was that um, John Williams' music that he wrote for that film doesn't exist were it not for Dmitry Shostakovich, mm-hmm. Sergei Prokofiev, Edward Elgar. Mm-hmm. We could even go back as far as Beethoven. Williams is a, 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 a very keen student of those great composers, largely from the 20th century, mm-hmm. probably the ones that he was reared on or listened to on a record player when he was growing up. Um, and so to hear his music is to reference a lot of those influences that he absorbed as a young musician and as a young composer. So if you want to think about it, his music could, and in some cases does serve as an entry point Mm -hmm. to these other great composers that influenced him. And, oh, the biggest one is uh, Gustav Holst's The Planets. Yes. I mean, if Gustav Holst had not written The Planets, I can't even conceive of some of the things that, that Williams came up with when he was writing the score to Star Wars. So for me, the hope is that if somebody, if you love this, try this. And that's what I did. I went from Star Wars to the planet. My mother brought me the planets. I remember she thought, I th- and it was interesting because, as you know, the, the, the parts on the planets for the individual planets aren't that long. So if you're a pop music listener or a rock music listener, five, six, seven minutes for right. a lot of the pieces. We're not talking about St. Matthew Passion. Right. And, and it really helps you digest what's going on. And, you know, it's such a great learning to sort of close your eyes and visualize and let your mind, let your thoughts flow while this yeah. wonderful music plays. It's a perfect way to get started doing that. One thing that's so neat about the, the planets by Holst is that it's kind of twofold. One is the inspiration comes from the, the Roman gods after which mm-hmm. the planets are named. But then there's also that celestial association with, with the, the actual size and the planets and, and their order in the, in the, cosmos mm-hmm. in the solar system um so you think well how, how would you write music about a planet well you adopt the characteristics of mercury the winged messenger right. or or uh, mars the bringer of war um or you know neptune the the, the mystic mm-hmm. that the individual qualities or characteristics the human characteristics that were ascribed to these roman gods and then named to the planets becomes one way that inspired holst and then the other way is just the immensity, yes. the space, the grandeur, the, it's a great word, the grandeur that's associated with these bodies spinning in their own orbits in and around the, the sun. Uh, it's, it's, it's an astonishing work, but one that's very powerful and one that certainly influenced John Williams in his creation of the score for Star Wars. And, that, and that's what I love about getting into classical music is um, all you have to do is to like start to pick up those breadcrumbs. Okay, I get this. This is okay. And then the next thing, because that did lead me to Elgar, who I adore. Um, and it, John Williams did. And it's, you just, you know, it's, it's, don't worry about, uh, uh, it's, it's not, it's not school. It's enjoyment. Um, the people who are, playing the music, the people who are conducting the orchestra, they're the ones who train. They're the ones who study. All you have to do is enjoy. That's right. And follow your own taste. And one of the things I love about live performance is you're asked to switch off everything. Mm-hmm. Switch off your beeper, switch off the phone, put it in your pocket, put it away, 
and give yourself over to this moment because there's this enormous energy that comes to you from 85 to 100 musicians mm. firing together, making this grand music. But there's also this incredible sensation of what are these composers trying to say to you or to us collectively mm-hmm. as an audience from an emotional or a, or a spiritual standpoint that you can start to perceive or start to call or pull from these performers making great music. It's an astonishing, it's an astonishing experience, not unlike a really great spiritual or worship experience where you're just, you're so into the moment that you forget that time is passing. Yes. And for me, that's always my job. That's always (laughs) the pressure that I lay on my own shoulders. That's not an easy job. Because if you think about it, you know, if you go to a museum and you see a picture, a painting, or a sculpture you don't like, what do you do? You move on. You move on. You walk past it. You don't devote time to it. But if you're in a concert hall and you're in row Q in seat 15, which is right in the middle, you're there for at least yeah. at least the piece, which <laughs> in the case of Gustav Mahler or Holst could be as long as 45 minutes yes. to, to an hour and a half. Um, no, of course, a, a Mozart symphony lasts 25 minutes. Um, a, a movement of a concerto may be even shorter. Um, but it's just to say that I feel an enormous amount of responsibility mm-hmm. to really dig behind the notes and the symbols on the page to bring these intentions and these ideas and these emotional states that I think the composer is trying to convey in the music to our actual performance. And that's my charge. And that's what gets keeps me up late at night and gets yeah. me up early <laughs> in the morning because I feel an enormous responsibility. I feel a weight um, of all these composers saying, you better get this right, Daniel. Well, and it must make it all the more gratifying when you're doing a piece that you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm you know, I want to see if I can bring people along in this and people respond. Yeah. And I know oh. that's happened with the refill pieces that, you know, maybe you thought or whomever thought, okay, this is a difficult piece, but we're going to do it. And people just responded. They immediately took to it. It's interesting how that happens. And that's the one thing that we as performers are always reminded is that that performance is unique. Mm -hmm. That audience will never be the same group of people. will never play that piece in quite the same way. That is a singular event that happens when we take the stage and perform that concert on Saturday night for our Mm -hmm. audience. And I think that's what makes it feel so special. Sure. And I think what makes the audience respond in the way that they do, because they sense that same thing. And even if we don't think about it every time that we take the stage, we know that we're going to be a part of a unique event that will never be replicated. Mm-hmm. As much as we may love to play Brahms's Fourth Symphony over and over again, or Beethoven's Fifth, um, that will never be rendered or performed in quite the same way, and and due in large part to the other human beings that are sitting in the room. Yes, as audience participants. Yeah, how about that? Well, let's. Uh, you know what we're. We've been pontificating for a good long time. We could go all day, actually. I could talk about music all day, especially to somebody like the maestro. But let's talk about uh, what's coming up at uh, at the Phil. October 6th, let's start with the Symphotic Series. Marc-Andre Amlin, uh, tell me about that show. Well, he's, first of all, one of the foremost pianists on the planet Earth. Uh, an enormous recording discography. He's recorded all sorts of amazing repertoire. Um, but he's actually coming to Erie to play a straight-up-the-middle romantic Russian yes. concerto, the Rachmaninoff II, which many people already know and, and love and treasure as one of their favorite piano concertos. So it's it's kind of unique to have Marc-André, who's known for maybe some things on the fringe of, of the mm-hmm. repertoire, to come and play a core piece with us. And we're thrilled because uh, 
I I had the distinct pleasure of, of collaborating with him only once in my career so far and was really looking forward to bringing him to Erie if it were all possible. And he agreed to come and, and play the Rachmaninoff. And that's a piece that everyone will enjoy. I mean, I can't see anybody not responding to that, especially with him at the keys. If there's a little bit of warmth in your heart, <laughs> <laughs> it we should st- be just enough yeah. to, 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 to touch that, that part. We still have a little bit after last winter. <laughs> uh, then November 3rd, a, uh, a program of Mozart, Beethoven, and Strauss. Yes. Speaking of uh, music people love. Well, the Rosen Cavalier Suite is this just enormous, wonderful, rich, romantic work that includes a lot of the, the waltzes that, that Strauss wrote in this particular mm-hmm. opera, but it's also very um, referential to an older, more grand time of the, um, of the Baroque and classical era. So it's, it's a fascinating work and one where Strauss kind of looks backwards and forwards at the same time. And then we're also featuring Amitai Vardi, who's our principal clarinet, mm-hmm. and he gets to play the Mozart concerto, step out from within the woodwind section and stand up in the wow. front of the stage and play this incredible document from, from one of the last pieces Mozart ever wrote. Wow. Wow, that's great. And the Copeland's third for the January 26th show. Come on now. Uh, the, the brass and the percussion. Yeah, getting a little rowdy. Been, it's, it's like a red meat for, for <laughs> yeah, a dog. It it's just, uh, you know, the, this is one of those pieces that you just salivate once you know yes. that you're going to get, get a chance to play. People will know some of the music for this because it very prominently features the fanfare for the common man. That right. fanfare that he wrote in, uh, at world, uh, during World War II becomes the principal musical material for the last movement of the symphony. Mm-hmm. And then he mm. builds this great American symphony around it. I mean, everybody talks about the great American novel. I mean, when you talk about the great American symphony, Copeland's third is, is at the top of the list. Yes, without a doubt. And then March 9th, Symphony Fantastique. Uh, a French romantic symphony by Hector Berlioz, uh, also Ooh. very famous in that Berlioz was kind of the bridge between Beethoven and the re- kind of the revolutionary spirit that he injected into his into that music, mm-hmm. and this idea that romantic composers now are starting to write things about themselves and about their mm-hmm. own egos and their own dreams <laughs> and and nightmares, and Berlioz takes that to the hilt and creates an entire symphony based on an obsession he had with a Shakespearean actress with whom he fell in love. He saw her perform in English in Paris on the French day. He did, I probably didn't understand but a word that she spoke, but he was completely entranced by her and dreamed up this entire dream scenario where he completely became obsessed with her all the way to the degree that he would be marched off to the scaffold, scaffold and beheaded for it. So the things we do for it. love. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote a whole symphony about it. And you could call it a fever dream, a bit of a <laughs> love fever dream. And then on April 13th, Brahms Requiem. This is a piece that's very close to my heart because um, it's a it's a piece. It's not a typical requiem in the sense that it's a, a mass for the dead, but it's more a document for the living. Mm-hmm. It's a piece written for those of us still left here on earth mm-hmm. who have to grapple with the loss of people that we loved. And what does it mean to pass from this realm into another? And how do we deal with that? So Brahms was very specific about the texts that he chose from scripture. He, he didn't want to do a, a liturgical requiem, but he wanted to write a piece that offered some kind of consolation or solace to those of us who have lost someone we really love mm-hmm. or someone who was really close to us. And uh, one of the movements is a dedication to his own mother, the, the solo soprano movement. It's a gorgeous piece. It's a warm piece. It's uh, very rarely dips into kind of hell, hellfire and brimstone. There are a mm-hmm. few moments, but most of it is is a consolation or a, or a balm. Yeah, I don't know that piece. I'm looking forward to that. 
Uh, then the Pops series begins September 22nd with the uh, 1812 Pops favorites. You've got to have uh, Tchaikovsky, of course. Well, the 18 Overture, 1812 Overture is most commonly played outdoors at July 4th, and you've got, got the cannons and everything else going. Sure. But I thought, why not play it indoors and have a little bit of fun with this particular piece? Um, so we're going to come up with some creative ways to, to, mm-hmm. to, to pull it off, one of which is to use the or make use of the voices of the Erie Philharmonic Chorus. Believe it or not, there's a chorus part that was written for the 1812 Overture. I did not know that. I've never heard that. Originally in Russian, we're going, I think we're going to be singing the English translation of it, but you'll get this full-bodied Russian-style oh chorus associated with the 1812, and then, of course, all the bells and whistles that come at the end. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. October 27th, Mardi Gras. Well, it's sort of a halfway to Mardi Gras in right. New Orleans. Exactly. That's the idea is to celebrate music of Louis Armstrong and New yeah. Orleans jazz and Byron Stripling is a jazz trumpet player who's among the best. Yeah. And, uh, and we're really thrilled that he's coming to, to solo on that concert. And then of course, December 1st, come home for the holidays. That's our annual holiday Get concert. Get your tickets early, folks. That's the thing because they sell out soon. We did add a matinee performance. We sculpt that matinee performance a little bit more f- for families. Mm-hmm. And we play a little bit less music, but a little bit more Santa Claus and a little bit more um, Jingle Bell fun. Right. And then the evening is the full up, um, full length right. concert with an intermission. But, um, and Joan Ellison's coming over from Cleveland and she is an expert at the stylings and the music of Judy Garland. Oh, In fact, really? she has rights to some of the great MGM arrangements that were written for Judy for those, uh, for those great films. So she's going to bring those with her. For this concert, I think people are really going to enjoy it. Wow. How about that? Speaking of Judy Garland, uh, February 9th and 10th, Wizard of Oz. And then March 23rd, Lisa Roman Broadway Legend returns. She sang Christine Daae in The Phantom of the Opera over mm-hmm. 2,500 times. She is a an amazingly seasoned, wonderful Broadway performer. And if you can imagine singing the same, same role for 2,500 times, hmm. About halfway through, you start thinking, God, I would love to sing this, or I wish I were in this musical. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's exactly what she gets to do now in her career. She gets to perform in, in Broadway musicals, but also gets to, to shape and put together her own programs that feature, frankly, she's a wonderful artist. Yeah. She's just so smart and so talented and can bring all of this off with, with a plum. And I love working with her. And the, our audiences loved her last year, so mm-hmm. much so that we thought, oh, we really need to bring her back as soon as we can. So yeah. we were just lucky to find a, a, a slot in her schedule that would work. Excellent. Another fantastic season. We had another fantastic B. Beethoven. So I guess we'll do it again next year. Thank you. Oh, of course. No, this thing is, is a, a, a boulder gathering steam as it rolls down <laughs> yes, the hill. Yes, it is. More and more runners and, <laughs> and more and more vendors are getting interested in being part of the street fair. So, yeah, it's, it's becoming kind of a signature event for us and a great yeah. way to kick off the new Erie Philharmonic season. Absolutely. Thank you, Maestro. Pleasure, Alan, as always. And thank you for listening.